You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Well-constructed fishing and smishing are reported out of Tehran. Estimates of solar winds compromise insurance payouts. Notes from industry on the convergence of criminal and espionage TTPs. Social engineering hooks have been baited with greed. Ring patches a bug that could have exposed users' geolocation and their reports of crime. Advice on cyber best practices from CISA and NSA. Robert M. Lee has thoughts for the incoming Biden administration. Our guest is Sir David Omond, former director of GCHQ, on his book, How Spies Think, Ten Lessons in Intelligence. And an ethics officer is accused of cyber stalking. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 15th, 2021. Iranian cyber campaigns have been overshadowed by the probably Russian Solarigate operations, but Charming Kitten was active over the holidays. ZDNet cites a CERTFA Labs report on Christmas and New Year-themed phishing and smishing that appears to have enjoyed some success. The campaign represents the second time Charming Kitten has been able to hide behind legitimate Google URLs. CERTFA, which specializes in monitoring Tehran's online activities, says that the campaign was interested in members of think tanks, political research centers, university professors, journalists, and environmental activists in the countries around the Persian Gulf, Europe, and the U.S. The smishing aspects of the campaign used texts that represented themselves as Google account recovery messages. The text itself is idiomatic and plausible, without the typographical or usage eccentricities that so often mark smishing, and the URL which the victim is invited to follow in order to confirm their identity also looks more legit than usual, given that it begins with the reassuring Google.com. The phishing was comparably well-constructed and plausible. It was also more varied and to some extent tailored to cater to the probable interests and predispositions of the recipients. These emails generally communicated holiday greetings. Both the phishing and the smishing used redirect services, the better to bypass email security systems. The holiday campaign represented, Certfa thinks, a continuation of earlier efforts, and Charming Kitten can be expected to remain comparably active and inventive in the coming months. As Solorigate remains under investigation, BitSight tells CRN that one aspect of the campaign, the supply chain attack that backdoored SolarWinds' Orion platform, 
could cost insurers some $90 million. If that seems low, consider that a large fraction of the most seriously affected victims were U.S. government agencies that normally don't carry cyber insurance. And also consider that the incident is still relatively new, with a great deal more investigation to be done. Intel 471 argues that Solarigate displays the continuing convergence of criminal techniques and cyber espionage tactics. Supply chain attacks started as a technique in the cyber criminal underground, and their utility in espionage is now also evident. Started in the cyber criminal underground is perhaps overstated. Supply chain attacks haven't been overlooked by intelligence agencies, as Intel 471 itself notes. 2016's NotPetya incident, in which software updates for the Ukrainian accounting software package MEDOC were compromised to spread malware that masqueraded as ransomware, was a software supply chain incident credibly attributed to Russian intelligence services. And there have been, over the past decade, numerous accounts of hardware supply chain poisoning, some of which have been partially confirmed, some debunked, and others left undetermined. Again, as Intel 471 says, the tactics, techniques, and procedures of a supply chain attack are attractive to both criminals and intelligence organs. There's another reason for the confluence. There appears to be an increasing tendency for governments to outsource development of some attack tools. That's attractive for a number of reasons, economy and deniability figuring prominently among them. Bitdefender describes a resurgence of the Remco's remote access Trojan engaged, as rats so often are, in credential theft. In this case, Remco's used COVID-19 fish bait in its spam and concealed additional malicious payloads steganographically in popular viral images. The campaign also featured anti-reverse engineering elements. Remco's has been out and making a nuisance of itself since 2017 at least. Bitdefender says the current ongoing surge began late last summer. Remcos has seen a good deal of use by criminals. In another example of the convergence of crimeware with spyware, it's also been used by APT-33, thought to be run by Iran, and the Gorgon Group, which researchers have associated with both criminal gangs and Pakistani agencies. Coronavirus fishbait has also been used in large-scale business email compromise campaigns. Proofpoint reports that the lures generally appealed to greed rather than fear. Typical bait with the act-now urgency that characterizes social engineering in business email compromise dangles predictions of a coming vaccine-driven global economic boom offering big profits to savvy early birds. Other bait suggests investment opportunities in distressed companies, sure to turn profits post-turnaround, or even the mundane notice about a vaccine-related shipment. Ring, the smart doorbell unicorn acquired by Amazon, says that it's fixed a privacy issue with its next-door neighborhood watch functionality. TechCrunch reports that hidden geolocation data and message metadata could have been exposed via a bug that enabled those who knew where to look to retrieve the data. The vulnerability was worrisome in that it could have exposed the locations of the homes of those who, for example, reported crimes. U.S. federal agencies, and by implication those in the private sector who do business with them, have been given two more bits of guidance on sound practice. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has recommended using ad blockers, taking other steps to secure browsers as a means of protecting against malvertising. 
CISA's advice comes in three parts. First, standardize and secure web browsers according to leading practices. This reduces attack surfaces, simplifies monitoring, and makes both configuration and patch management easier. Next, use ad blockers. This not only reduces the risk of malvertising itself and attendant malicious redirects, but cuts the risk of unauthorized data collection and improves client-side performance. And finally, isolate browsers from operating systems with many attendant gains in security, flexibility, and efficiency. NSA has warned against regarding DNS over HTTPS, known by the acronym DOH, as a security panacea. ZDNet says that the bottom line of NSA's advice is for organizations to host their own DOH resolvers and avoid sending DNS traffic to third parties. And finally, there's a cyber-stalking case in Florida. ThreatPost reports that the former ethics officer for the city of Tallahassee has been arrested and charged with cyber-stalking a former inamorato who also worked for the city. The arrest was made Monday, and the judge has ordered her to stay away from the sometime object of her affections and also to keep off the Internet until her trial is over. The former ethics officer, who had been responsible for, among other things, training Tallahassee's civil servants and office holders in, well, ethics, should be considered innocent of the misdemeanor until proven guilty. Still, one is tempted to think, physician, heal thyself. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. Sir David Omond is visiting professor at King's College London and former director of GCHQ, the UK government's intelligence and security organization. He's author of the recently published book, How Spies Think, Ten Lessons in Intelligence. Sir David Omond, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Well, let's uh, let's begin with the book here. Um, what prompted you to write the book, How Spies Think? I started writing this book after seeing how First of all, the British Brexit referendum and then the 2016 US presidential election were being reflected in social media. And I was getting increasingly cross at the way that 
I saw this rising tide of half-truths and distortions trying to persuade us online of what we ought to think and, and want, not to mention some outright uh, falsehoods and deceptions, and not just coming from Russia uh, aimed at widening divisions in society and increasingly setting us at each other's throats. Well, the book sets up a, a framework that um, that you all used in British intelligence that you maintain is is useful for all of us as we try to uh, deal with this um, uh, misinformation quite often. Can you take us through, I mean, how, how does uh, someone trained the way that you were uh, approach uh, this sort of information? I've coined an acronym, SEES, S-E-E-S, for the four kinds of output that rational analysis or, or uh, can, can give a decision maker. And the first S in SEES is situational awareness, facts on the ground. But facts on their own tell you nothing. It's only when you explain them, when you put them in a context, that they actually have meaning for us. And this can be really quite difficult. This is E, in first E in C's, the explanation of what you're seeing. I mean, every defense lawyer knows this. But if you've got a good explanation and enough uh, data, then you can estimate how things might uh, evolve and this is for the decision maker, really what they want to know. It's looking ahead. It's saying, on the basis of these assumptions, this is what we expect to see happening next. And this answers questions that start with why or what for. But whilst you're focused on those first three, situational awareness, explanation and estimation, something totally unexpected, is liable to come and hit you on the back of the head. So I round off the acronym, the final S, uh, with strategic notice. That is giving the decision makers some advance warning of things that might come and disturb them, uh, dangerous developments uh, in the future. Taken all together, if you have those four outputs, for, then you can... Uh, I think, uh, take good evidence-based decisions. What do you hope that people take away from it? What do you hope that someone who, who reads the book learns from it? Well, the top-line message would be be much more aware in this digital era as you uh, use social media. Be aware of what is happening to you. You are being emotionally manipulated. And whether it's for the purposes of commercial purposes, advertising uh, that is targeted at you, whether it's political advertising that's targeted at you, or indeed whether it's hostile interference in your democracy targeted by an adversary country. Be aware of that. Uh, not everything you read is true. And I think that sense of just being more careful and that leads inevitably into the kind of analysis you need to carry out, the kind of thinking, let's call it just thinking. You just have to be a little more careful how you think in this era. Um, and politicians have to be more responsible about, although they can try and manipulate us uh, emotionally using social media, for example, uh, they shouldn't they should get back to a much more rational conversation with their voters. 
Well, the title of the book is How Spies Think, 10 Lessons in Intelligence. Sir David Omond, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Don't forget we have extended versions of many of our CyberWire interviews as part of CyberWire Pro. You can find out more about that on our website, thecyberwire.com. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Rob, it's always great to have you back. Um, we have got a uh, new presidential administration coming into uh, Washington, and um, I-, I wanted to get your take on advice that you would have for an incoming administration from the ICS point of view. Uh, what-, what sort of advice would you share? Great. So um, I've been giving advice to those that have asked uh, in the transition team and some more. I'm happy to share it publicly. Uh, there, there's a couple key things I think are, are really relevant, and and really I'll start at the kind of the strategic level, and then dig into some, maybe some more tactical areas. So number one, at, at a strategic level, when you think about cybersecurity, whether it's infrastructure related or not, um, one of the core problems we've consistently had is a misunderstanding of roles and responsibilities of the private sector and the government. And the reality is the government's involvement, contributions, and and sometimes just direct funding of efforts in the private sector have been really well met. I mean, there's been a lot of things that they've done that have absolutely helped the community. At the same time, when you have success or maybe you have a big mandate from somebody like Congress and you try to go satisfy that mandate, you very naturally start running into conflict with the private sector. And fundamentally, I'm a strong advocate that tax-paying entities should not be competing with tax-paid entities. And it's not just on the sort of ethics of that statement. It's actually in the fact that one of the United States' greatest strengths is the ability to have a well-functioning government and a well-functioning private sector. Hollywood has done more for diplomacy by teaching kids in Norway English than you know an embassy in that location would. Uh, the Silicon Valley and Maryland kind of cyber hubs, if you will, of technology and innovation and and um, the things that come out of that far outpace and outperform any innovation that's happened in government. And that's a good thing. We even saw government take great advantage of this with the defense industrial base. We don't build airplanes. We go and talk to Raytheon and Northrop and Boeing, and we partner, and we figure out how to create best-in-class you know, weapon systems. And so in the same way, my, my probably guiding advice is, number one, 
clarify the roles and responsibilities because there's fights interagency that's confusing. When I get CEOs of power and manufacturing companies that ask me, like, who are we supposed to call? Because when the FBI comes in, they say, call me when there's an incident. DHS comes in, call me for this. DOE comes in, call me for this. And, and we have sector-specific agencies, and we should very much figure out and stick to roles and responsibilities. At the same time, stop telling the private sector that you can do things that you can't. Hey, we'll be your incident response team. You got like four people on the team, you don't even have the legal authorities. Like, stop it. Um, and so figuring out how to balance that or the idea that government's going to be creating technology that competes with the private sector, absolutely ridiculous. So, uh, you know, said simply, if you call the ball, you got the ball. If you say, hey, I'm on it, you got to own it. And the private sector will instantly wash their hands and go, cool, they've got it. But if you can't scale the mission everywhere, and you can't really do what you're calling, then you got to not do it. Otherwise, you're going to confuse the heck out of folks. Um, sort of digging in, Beyond that, I would say that cybersecurity can be and should be nonpartisan. Mm. And we have seen this to great effect. When I went and testified to the U.S. Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee in 2018, it was Republican and Democrats at a very decisive time in the United States, right? 2018, 2019, 2020, definitely um, very polarized politics. And the committee was great. And you couldn't pick out which ones were Republicans or Democrats on the, the ways they were asking the questions because everybody cared that we wanted to have secure and reliable electric and, and um, gas and, and water infrastructure. Everyone agreed with that. We might have debated about the how, but we all agreed that this was worth doing and something that, that had a role for the private sector and a role for government. Um, so keeping that bipartisan or nonpartisan nature um, of cybersecurity needs to be forefront, and we need to make sure that we're playing to our strengths. Those are kind of the two biggest themes. I've got plenty of tactical suggestions I make them. Hey, here's what's going on here. Hey, please don't stand up yet another committee. Don't stand up yet another agency. Like, we have too much stuff. You need to button it up, if anything. You know, there, there's, there's all sorts of tactical things, but at a strategic level, if we make cybersecurity nonpartisan, if we play to our strengths and if we clearly define those strengths and roles and responsibilities, then we will be in a much better place nationally. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Discover your own backyard. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Don't miss this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Selena Larson from Dragos on a pair of activity groups they've been tracking who now possess ICS-specific capabilities and tools to cause disruptive events. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Guru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you.
Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 